to his left and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down. Wonderful try. We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lenahan. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Let's start with the uh, Irish squad picked for the tour to New Zealand and uh, just compare it back with the predictions that we made um, a few weeks ago. You had predicted a squad of 42 and Andy Farrell has decided to bring 40 overall. Um, what were the big, I mean, apart from injuries, I mean, you know, say, for example, Balakun will be a really big miss because he's such a exciting player who would have probably thrived in this environment what do, you, what do you think are the big calls the big misses and what were the differences from your predictions um very few in terms of big i'll go down so very few very few in terms of big calls big misses i would say that there the one was ross Byrne, who i had in alongside sexton and carberry out for Harry Byrne. Now, in between that, Jack Carty got injured and ruled himself out of the... Ruled himself, like, was ruled out of the um, of the touring party. But, like, I think going into the Heineken Cup final, Ross was on the plane, and without Harry doing any rugby, Ross is off the plane, and Harry's on it. So I think Ross played himself off. I think Ross actually ended up with minus marks, which is... Like it's it, it's it's impossible. It's almost impossible to do. Um, no, not almost impossible. I remember in the twenty eleven uh, prior to the Rugby World Cup, Tomas O'Leary. Tomas O'Leary played himself off the plate. Yeah, so it's not impossible to do. Like that. That's only that's just over ten years ago. Um, it, in the Six Nations. I think after the France match in a particular grump, I said that he should bring Harry Byrne and Crowley. And like he's not going to learn anything new about Carby or, or Ross Byrne on that trip. It's his last chance to be in... It's his first chance in a while, and it's his last chance before the World Cup to be in that environment where you're away, it's intense, it's all rugby, 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 and... You can you can go with it. He's, he can't do that in the Six Nations. Whereas you can do it in a tour match, particularly if you've got midweek starts. Um, he got halfway there with Harry, um, and he would have had to make an incredible leap of faith in Crowley. But like, I think the obvious thing with Ireland is that they're so reliant on Johnny Sexton in ten, and nobody has has stood up to challenge him. And the thing is that, like, oh, you know, you have to rip the jersey off his back. But if if the jersey isn't being ripped off his back, like, you have to make a massive vote of confidence in somebody to do it. Now, I didn't expect him 
to leave either um, Joey. I certainly didn't expect him to leave Joey at home, seeing as like Joey is the the anointed son. But I think like we've gone into depth in that. There is an argument to do it, and I didn't really expect him to leave Ross at home. So I think that was the biggest surprise. Yeah, I was going to say when you were talking about Ross playing himself off uh, the plane. Um, you know, the difference is like Joey <clears throat> could have played himself off the plane because his last two games for Munster were very ordinary. His game against Ulster was poor and his game against Leinster was ordinary. Uh, they were important games for Munster and it sort of shows uh, Farrell's reliance on him that this fella isn't playing well and he still gets picked. And it would have been enormous for Carberry because Carberry started a match in the Six Nations. He was involved in the autumn. He was involved all the way through the Six Nations, whereas Ross wasn't. Yeah. And Harry was involved in, in November. So it, it's far less of a slip for Ross. But I think given that he'd been given, given that he'd been given, given, given? Given, given. Yeah. Uh, that he'd, he'd been selected for to start the, the semi final. And he'd been entrusted, and albeit that uh, Sexton went off with an injury, he'd been entrusted with the bench spot in the in the Heineken Cup final. That he was he was certainly ahead of Harry mm. um, in the Leinster pecking order. So he's he's the biggest one. The other ones then that made a difference. Like I I'd, I'd gone for my Bolter. I went for Doak. Um, fully aware that Conor Murray would probably be selected, and there was an argument for it. So Murray's been picked in that one. I had Balakoon and Conway in. So I had 42. So my, my extra back ended up being one of Balakoon or Conway. And uh, Jordan Larmer is going to go and play. So those two guys, everyone else um, I had. So I didn't really see many surprises there. And then I had, uh, I had, I had an extra prop. That was my extra man. I had Marty Moore. I brought Witcherly at, at Third choice loose head rather than Lockman. So like third choice loose head is you know third third spear carrier really. Uh like it's it's one of Munster's um you know, which one is the first choice? Uh Keller's injured, so Heffernan comes in. And then uh, he's gone if you if you use my rationale, he's gone for more second rows. So I, I thought he'd bring Tom Ahern, or I was hoping he'd bring Tom Ahern. I didn't see the argument for bringing Treadwell. He's brought Treadwell, who was involved in the Six Nations squad, so it's not a massive surprise. And he's gone with Joe McCarthy, who started, or sorry, who ended the season strongly, and he's bought, and he went for Prendergast. And I had Penny and O'Donoghue, so he's he's left, you know, I, I had a more back row heavy squad, but I think the argument... You, you can certainly make the argument that Ty Byrne is is a well, back he na- row. He named Baird as a back row. Back, he named they, Baird as a back yeah, row. Yeah, so they, they listed the squad this time instead of doing alphabetically. They actually listed the squad in our few website by positions. And Ryan Baird oh, is, in, okay. is, is in his back row. Better way to list it, by the way. Well done, the IRFU. Um, so Baird is now, which I think is a decisive decision from, uh, from Farrell, saying that Baird is now going to be a back row for at least the next year. Yeah, it, it's funny because I have it written out and I wonder if I just took the names across. Maybe I just copied them across. I have it written out, James Ryan, Treadwell, Baird, Byrne. Uh, yeah, Byrne is in as a second row. Byrne's in as a second row. Yeah, uh, uh, Byrne and Treadwell. Yeah. So the second rows are uh, Henderson, Byrne, Ryan, Joe McCarthy, Treadwell. And then the back row starts with Baird. I think he has to pick Tyke Byrne in the back row. 
And the reason I think that is having watched Leinster play the the final of the Heineken and the semi-final of the league and not make a turnover of any note and not, not really compete in the ground at all, mm-hmm. not Jackal, is that that combo of Doris, Van der Fleer and Conan gives you very little Jackal threat. Yeah, it's their weakness. And very, very little, very little opportunity to contest. So like Van der Fleer is, is the weakest part of his game as an open side. Um, Conan... Not great. Dara's quite good, but and Dara's quite good, but not elite though. Not elite, whereas like Tyburn is elite. It's one of his things. And I remember I was, I, I used to work with a guy who was uh, close to Conan, sort of family. No, it wasn't close to Conan. He was close to Jordy Murphy, um, oh, yeah. and. It was around the time, I don't know, it was like 2017, 2018. So looking at pretty World Cup squad places. Mm -hmm. But even looking at places on the Leinster team and Jordy and Conan were a shootout against each other. And like the sort of the talk, the the take from the Jordy camp was that um, Conan wasn't great in the the jackal at all. In fact, he offered very little jackal threat, uh, which sort of matches up to what you see. Like Jack's very good on the ball, very good tackler. And that's it. Yeah, not great. Yeah, he's a line at option, but like he was jumping at two against the Bulls a lot, and be it like a combination of you know slowish throw in the air, like not being able to win your own ball at two is fucking disastrous. Yeah, so not not great, and Jackal particularly poor. So like you, yeah, I think you have to play tight if you if you're. Tyburn's going to jackal no matter what numbers on his back. Yeah, but you need to have him in your back row. Because you need to have, I think you need to have that threat in your back row. And your second row is too important for the set piece, whereas you're picking a guy in jackler and you're not getting anything defense. I just think it's a big weakness. Not not having a jackal threat in your back row. I can see that, yeah. That's a good point. Not having a serious jackal threat. Um, so one of the things that I felt, well, you, you mentioned Jack O'Donoghue there, I think it's very unfortunate to miss out. But uh, it's something we've talked about before. In that back row selection, Prendergast is obviously a six, nothing else. Baird as a back row is obviously a six, nothing else. Omani is a six, seven. Uh, Van der Fleer is a seven. Timoney's a seven. Timmy, see, that's the difference. Colin's like, an eight, Coombs is an eight. Stroke second, and Doris is a six eight. Yeah, so in selecting Timoney, he's looking for second open side behind Josh van der Fleer. Mm. Timoney's played like seventeen starts as an open side for months or for Ulster this season, and Jack O'Donoghue had four starts as an open side. Jack O'Donoghue has played six, uh, mostly a good bit of eight at the end of the, at the the pointy part of the season. Uh, and seven, about seven and eight equally, it's like four stars and four stars, but most of the time it's six. So I think Jamie, he's upset. I, I didn't see against the head, but he said like, he is, he's a back row, jack of all trades, master of none. Now he was, he had a great season. Like he won Munster's player of the year, scored nine tries, was definitely the best player. And it's tough for him to miss out. But I think that's the reason that he missed out in that at 28 years old, you're still going, like, is he a six? You know, because he doesn't play six for, for Munster in big games. If you're talking about jackal threat, though, he offers a lot more than Keane Prendergast at, like, 
Well, yeah, you know, he offers like he, and Keen Prendergast. Surely, it sounds like there's a lot of sixes on that tour already. Does yeah, I agree. It's a good <laughs> point. You know, he's a jackal threat. Jackdon is actually a very good line out option as well. He's not he's not as tall as as either Byrne or Baird or Prendergast. But when you look at how many lineouts he wins in a season for Munster, it's a lot. And seems like so. It seems he suffered more from selection dithering by Munster hierarchy than his own performances. Yeah, but it's a, you see, it's a more complicated case than that because you know up until this point, I would have said like just select him at seven uh, when you know there was a case of between him and Clota, so you could select. Your best back row for last season and this season would have been O'Mahony at six, Coombs at eight, and, and O'Donoghue at seven. But CJ last season. No, it was it was CJ was gone last season. CJ was gone last season. Yeah, so Coombs had his big season last season. Jeez, I thought CJ was. Oh fuck yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. sorry, yeah, yeah. I said that. Yeah, yeah, because uh, yeah, because Conan started playing for it. But, but did CJ not? Jeez, I completely lost. But then seven this season has seen both Hodnett and Kendallin. Who are potentially both better sevens than Jack O'Donoghue. Um, certainly Kenton has a very, very big future. Some people were saying he was unlucky not to go on this tour. I don't think that's reasonable at all. Like he would have been lucky to go on this tour. But he's certainly he's certainly a very, very good player with a very big future ahead of him. And that's like his his position now going forward is gonna be a seven, and they won't f- fucking play him at six sometimes and eight sometimes and seven sometimes. No, sorry, I'm just looking. CJ played against England in March 2021. Yeah, but Coombs had a big season, though, last year, if you remember the 15 try. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. And, yeah. and Coombs played for Ireland on the back of that. Yeah. Started against uh, started against USA. Japan, USA. Yeah. And uh, played against Japan, is, is, well, is my not, memory. Then I was confused and not you were confused. Yeah. But th- that's where O'Donoghue suffers from. But that that's what it was. So the thing with O'Donoghue, because I remember he was one of the four-ups, or it was a five-up maybe that year. So kept an eye on him when he came out, was that um, from the off, he was shuttled around the back row. And you're kind of, and particularly when he was younger, he was smaller and warrior. And you're going well, like CJ's always going to start for Munster yeah. when he's back. And Peter Manny's always, going to, always going to start at six, so he can really only start at seven. So you have to make the decision to play him seven. But like he wasn't really a seven at that stage. You're going like you're, you're playing a guy who's very good number eight or underage level at seven. Are you playing him at a position? And then it's a question of he's almost by the time it comes to it, he's better off playing as a seven. Yeah, all like all the way through, but he he spent his entire career shifting around the back row, and he's like he's twenty eight now. Yeah, you know, and he has had the best season of his career, and you're still going. Well, what is he? Is he your blind side? No, because Peter O'Mahony's your blind side. He's not your number eight either, because now Coombs is your number eight. So is he your open side? <clears throat> so that's that's I think where he's been unlucky. Uh, Ross Maloney got overtaken in the final lap nominally by Joe McCarthy, but really I think the shootout was between him and Treadwell. And I think Treadwell is a better athlete. Ross Malone is a better rugby player. Yeah, we've discussed that before yeah. that like I guess that there there was a clamor for him to go on the tour in in, in the immediate aftermath of brilliant performance against Toulouse. Uh, Toulouse in particular. And then you know the two you know the Leinster struggling against two much bigger packs immediately underlined the um the, the you know the 
the need for strength. Yeah, the need for, the need for just pure size and beef in the second row that uh, Ross Maloney is just just doesn't doesn't provide the size. He's just not yeah the huge size you need of a, a international second row. And then I have a, I have a, a topic, sort of a pet topic, uh, because like McCluskey has had a great season again for Ulster. He's a player who takes the disappointment of being overlooked for Ireland in his in his stride and never lets his form drop for Ulster. Makes the players inside him and outside him look really good. And um, the Andy Farrell went with Frawley, who I think this is like potentially Frawley could see his way into match day 23s as as a sub back. Yeah, uh, the inside 23 back. jersey or the 22 jersey, do you think? The 22, the 22 jersey. Because he kicks goals as well. He's a, like, he kicks the ball beautifully. The, the ball explodes off the bat. <laughs> uh, it really does. When you're, at, when you're at games and you hear Frawley kick the ball, it is like, it's a different sound than replaces. It's a great thump. He spirals the ball really nicely. He's quite big. He, well, he's big by regular standards. He's quite big by rugby black standards. He's like, it's one uh, 90, 95 kilos. So he can realistically play 12. He can realistically play 13. He has played fullback. Um, and then he goal kicks as well. And he passes beautifully. So it's... Like, I think I think he can realistically play 10, but not 13. He's no top-level experience playing 13. Oh, Terrible well, that's a, that's position fair. to defend. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. Uh but that's like the that's another call where he's gone like for example Joe McCarthy over over Ross Maloney, Kieran Frawley over Stuart McCluskey. So he's gone like with a younger player with more potential upside over a guy in very good and and uh, say Prendergast over over Jack O'Donoghue. Although it's not exactly like for like. So he's gone with a guy who has in 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 Farrell's opinion much bigger upside over the now and then. Tonight was like next season, you know. It's like the World Cup is is happening in about fourteen months' time, fifteen months' time. So it's that's they're interesting calls. I was going to ask, well, you already half answered it, but like, did you see any trends in the? I guess the peripheral picks, which are the ones that will kind of give more indication of what his what Farrell's bigger picture thinking is. It wants a wants a, another line out option on the on number six, like a six foot five, six foot six guy. Uh, I think that's one thing. I think with going with Frawley, I think he potentially is going to use a one game out of five with a six man forward bench and two backs, um, and see how that translates. Like so, so many teams are doing it. It's it's it's, it's hardly sort of comment worthy these days. It's so frequent like the French teams do it almost like Toulouse in their was it the Toulouse game tradition of kicking cast where they where they had like I think Toulouse against cast or maybe their quarter final the barrage round they subbed off all eight of their starting forwards (laughs) yeah they guys coming back on uh, like you know, some of them came back on with three minutes to play. No, yeah, it was it was the game against La Rochelle. Um, 
but literally they subbed off. So they'd made their six planned substitutions and then I think their sub, Luis Edivales broke his arm or something. So some guy came on with, you know, eight minutes to play and then Mervaca came on with three minutes to play. So they literally subbed everyone off. They might have had nine subs. They might have had guys come back on, but it was, uh, like, that was that's unusual, but, but you know, the six the six subs the six forward subs is it's hardly common worthy at the moment you know you yeah like somebody has obviously looked at it uh, somebody has looked at it people have done analysis people employed by the teams have gone we rarely lose like three backs to injury you know it's much more worthwhile bringing on forwards you can replace your entire tight five and then an extra player. Yeah. So um so I think that's something we'll do in one match mm-hmm. and play Frawley at, at number twenty three in a scrum half. Um and then overall on the tour, do you think we'll win a match? Do you expect us to beat New Zealand Maori away from home? Yeah, I think we'll beat the Maori in one game. Uh, like it seems to me that this season this is a personal opinion. Uh the season has gone on too long already. We're yeah, I mean, the, it's the summer sauce system. We're still talking <laughs> yeah, about rugby. We still have five <laughs> games. Even, they haven't even gone. Yeah. Like, that's the... Um, for some players, like, they get a they get a break coming back from the lines. For example, Ty, Jack Cohn, and Robbie Henshaw. But that's a bit of a break, and you're immediately looking into next season. Um, so maybe they get... And the Lions is such a tough tour because there's so much psychological pressure and tension that you're carrying around with you like Tide looks knackered Robbie doesn't look that knackered because he actually was quite injured this season didn't play much in the Six Nations uh, Conan sort of similarly didn't play that much as much as sort of he looks flatter he than looks he did flat. last yeah. season and, and and these guys haven't even gone over to New Zealand it's the winter in New Zealand it's going to be and the Kiwis are really interested in this test series you know, they've already sold out Eden Park. So no, I think it's going to be a really tough tour. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be 2012 and, like, everyone rolling out the white flag in the last test, but it's, it's going to be tough to win games. I'm not confident at all, I have to say. No, nor am I. I expect us to lose 3-0 in the test series, and I think any win on tour would be good. Yeah, and uh, that sounds remarkably negative. I, I expect us to be competitive throughout, and I really hope that players put their hands up. But I, I think you're in that environment where, um, I don't have the quote from Farrell. You you sent it in that it, it's it's walking not like, around Auckland or Wellington or Dunedin. It's not like walking down Balls Bridge, which he obviously thinks is a street. <laughs> <laughs> walking down Balls Bridge and people winding the window down and saying how good you are. This is completely different. This is proper international rugby that doesn't get any better and it's exactly what we want at this point in time. I think it would have been exactly what we wanted six weeks ago, frankly. <laughs> but the season wouldn't have been over and everyone would have been, wouldn't have been exhausted. Yeah, so like I think his, I think players will look forward to going into the Irish camp because it seems like a very positive camp. Nobody's won anything this year. Normally Leinster have a, a trophy 
And it is normally like it's like every year for the last four years, Leinster have mm-hmm. gone into the summer tour, or gone on a Lions tour with a trophy under their belt. So those those players, I think, will still be looking to do something. But it just seems like it's been a long season, and I I have I have rugby fatigue. Um, not that I'm not interested in it. Like I still you know see what's happening in all the the competitions that are still on, but it does seem like my. I, I'm set up like for, for rugby to follow the academic year, start of September, end of May. Yeah, I'm I'm completely like that. I remember when the Lions went to South Africa a few years ago and they were sort of tracking, there's a lot of writing about 1997 and you see the dates when the matches were played and I, I read the Tom English book and, you, you know, there's, again, it's chronicled and you go, it was just such a better schedule like they, they went off at the end of May or did they go off at the end of May I can't remember when they might have like those like the test match the test it, series it, it, finished in July like I yeah. think it was the first weekend in July when they finished that test series they played throughout June they might have they might have left at the at the end of May but it was it was a much more what I would think of as a recognisable uh, touring schedule um, but that said like I'm I'm really looking forward to the guys going over I'm I'm very curious if a um, few guys in particular can make their mark. Very, very curious about Harry Byrne, uh, Casey, Hume. Um, yeah. Larmer to an extent, I although... Gonna, I think he's going to go really well, I have to say. You know, to an extent, and... Probably Ryan Baird I, is a mystery. So we'll see which way that one plays out. Yeah, I think those... Uh, and like, Coombs. Oh, yeah. Coombs I'm really interested in because he's he's played so little international rugby for free and such an obviously international calibre player. Mm. Like, he, he is by... It'd be really interesting to see him play against the All Blacks because, like, in every game he plays, he looks like one of the strongest lads on the pitch. Mostly the strongest lad on the pitch. He gets go for it every time he gets the ball. Whether he's taking it, like going backwards, he still gets go for it ball. I'm, yeah, I'm really interested in Coombs more than anybody. Like, I have to say, and this might sound a bit negative, like, unless Keen Prendergast does like a Jeremy Davidson, like, which I don't foresee, I just don't, uh, like, I think he's going to be like fourth choice blindside, maybe fifth choice. You know, behind behind Doris, then O'Mahony, then Byrne, then Baird, then Kean Prendergast. It might be that he's a very good attitude, which I've heard Farrell quoted about it, um, and Birch, of course, I was referencing Birch, uh, talked about it. And I think he's got a younger brother and his parents are into Sam psychology. Sam the, uh, the out half, yeah. He's playing for, the, playing for the 20s on Friday, or he probably would play for the 20s on Friday. Um, Big six foot five out half. Oh, brilliant. Good oh, face. Great. Classic good face. Great. Love a six foot five Love out half. Skills. He's as tall as Leo Cullen. I saw a photo of him. He showed up at a Leinster training session a um, number of months ago. I was like, oh, jeez, what position is this lad's Brenner ass brother? He's like, a little bit skinny for a forward. He's going to fucking out half. Like. Um, has he, has Keen Prendergast been one of the players who's been in like an Irish training? Yeah, yeah so they, yeah. he came in in uh, Six Nations. Do you feel he, like? As the Ardy Sevilla. 
that guys like him have impressed. Yeah, him and Joe McCarthy, yeah. they have impressed. Yeah. And you know, I like I don't like don't like, hope he does badly or anything. I just certainly remain to be convinced. I would have picked Jack O'Donoghue for this. I would have picked O'Donoghue and Timothy. Because I would, like I think that there are like already a number of lads playing six, capable of playing six in this. And there's two and a half. Like Peter O'Mahony, you know, can play seven. Certainly not going to last a full game at seven. Well, um, <laughs> let me ask. I'm very curious. Having, having uh, but I think you more admitted to the fatigue, but I, I'm very curious to see them go on tour. I'm really curious to see if anybody can put their hands up above what, because asking about the surprise, and you got, there aren't really any surprises. Um, bar, like Harry Burns is where we started off the conversations. You got like the, the touring team, the touring squad is very predictable. So within that, are there any guys who go on tour and can grab the jersey? Yeah, because, like the first string jersey, not like, oh, yeah. he can get into the bench maybe. The interesting thing would be is somebody ends up playing the third dress, not through injury or anything like that, because like, oh, he's played his way into the well, Played his way I mean, in. I'd say that my guess would be, and it may, have, it may be um, a benefit that, you know, Munster didn't play a load of games Towards the end of the season, and he Coombs. Will, is that Coombs will end up take, overtaking Conan. Jack Conan. Coombs is the most obvious guy. If he's, yeah. if he's, if he's actually fit enough from returning from that injury, and if he's, I'm, I'm sure he's hungry enough. Larmer will take the 14 jersey as well, uh, because like they're down both Balakum, who definitely, in my opinion, would have taken Conway's the 14 jersey, and starting Conway. most. Game. Conway's got a dicky knee since yeah. the Six Nations. Like he never should have played in those games for Monster. He was on one leg, so. Um, I think there, and I think um, if he stays uh, fit, I think Frawley will uh, will grasp something. I'm not sure whether it's the. 23 what do you think, thing. though? Do you think 22? <clears throat> oh, he's get he's been picked at 23. I don't think Ireland will. I think Ireland will pick Joey at 22, and they'll end up. They might end up picking Frawley. At uh, twenty three, particularly if Larmer Just don't say it. No, because listen, if you you have to still go with like one of Aki or Henshaw, you know. Yeah, like Robbie was on the bench when Aki started throughout the Six Nations, so he's like the twenty three. Or else you go Hume. Hume had a poor like Hume played in a couple of Six Nations games and didn't do anything, but he's played really well for Ulster since. A human my position is a thirteen only another another position, so, and then you, then you look back at November and he played Earls at twenty three, and Earls has played a load of positions, and and as a in November I think he played a couple of times as the twenty three coming on for the outside centre, mm-hmm. and Earls finished the season well. Yeah. Well, so anyway, um, the one like, there are interesting the, points. The there. one, the one I think I definitely think. We could end up with Coombs uh, making an impact on the on being picked. Um, as I said, I, I don't think Jack Conan is playing particularly well or particularly bad. Like he's not having bad games, but he's just like I remember in the just thinking in the in both the two games that Leinster lost towards the end of the season, how um, how sort of little he, he just how little he was uh, involved in the main play. He of was. The game. It was actually better. Probably maybe better than you remember against the Bulls. Uh, yeah. But 
Yeah, he hasn't. He hasn't played his best rugby season. And I, I, I think that well, is. He like was on the Lions last season. Eminently, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, he started all three tests for the Lions, and like that's that's such a career high for anybody. It's it's hard to just like come out and knock the knock the knock the bottles off the wall. After anyway, that. I remember us losing in. Uh, it must have been the 2012 tour that we lost very narrowly. Maybe it was the one before that. Yeah. We lost very narrowly to the Maori. Well, oh, no, it was the one before that. Yeah, it was the 2010, yeah. yeah. Paddy Wallace playing, maybe. Rich Ruddock played. Oh, no, he played, oh. So 2010, we went middle loss, really tight loss. Yeah. Huge loss. Yeah. In 2012, we went uh, decent loss, uh, extremely so that, narrow loss. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, sorry, I thought it was yeah. before that, yeah. 2010, we had, like, under Bradley, we had two, like, pretty good performances. Yeah. And then we went and played Australia in one of the worst games we've played on a tour. Chris Henry played in that one at number eight and then didn't get paid again for four years. And he came back as a, as a rediscovered himself as an open side. I can't that, say... You watch that and be a Ritz. I can't say that one's in the memory bank. <laughs> no, it was a shit game. Some of the fans not happy with that. Referee blows for half time. All this talk of international selection for the big tour, which we all know is the last touring staging post before Ireland's World Cup campaign, um, where we will lose in the quarterfinals and everyone will write the continued narrative that Ireland will never get past the quarterfinals. The reality is that we're playing France or New Zealand. Anyway, you wanted to make a point about, um, about squad usage in Cup campaigns. Yeah, I think a couple of things as well, just as a preamble to that. The size of this squad convinced people, uh, Irish rugby fans in, in general, uh, especially the people who follow the provinces closely, like 40's big, like all my pet players might get in and it was never going to happen like that. Uh, Andy Farrell has his, like there was, a, there was talk early that like, when I say talk, there was a lot of people commenting that we should leave Sexton, Murray, Keane Healy, all the experienced players behind and we blood these young players in New Zealand. I just at the, at the start and in a previous modcast, I said that is fucking never going to happen. And it went so far as the IRFU issued basically a statement saying this is a massive, really important tour. Touring is one of the most important things. It was basically saying, don't get your hopes up, lads. We're not going to be picking like out half. Sorry, Andy, we're not going to be picking Crowley in this team. <laughs> um but then I've, I, I did a bit of research previously on uh, a number of months ago about the teams the, who win the World Cup what, uh, sorry, and, and, and what teams they actually play. And it's really black and white. They have a first string team who play in basically all the knockout games back to back. And that's like for, for New Zealand, New Zealand and South Africa. It's very few changes in the 23 for three in a row. They play their two hard pool games. And again, very similar. That's a first choice, 23. And then in the other games against a, a tier two and sometimes a tier three nation, they just play the rest of the lads in the squad. And they always, uh, they're always going to be more uh, forwards and backs. So sometimes the guys have to double up. Like Kino played famously all but three minutes of the World Cup or something like that in 2011. But it's, it's, it's very, very uh, repetitive and telling. It's like, do coaches know who they're, first string 15 is it's really important that you don't get many injuries that you don't get any suspensions and that your first string 15 is and it's very viable to have that more or less first string 15 maybe a couple of changes in the 23 overall 
playing the five big games of the tournament to win the World Cup. The team does not change. There's There's been occasions when uh, a selector has made a big call, as as Graham Henry did by dropping Mills Molina essentially halfway through the tournament to bring in Izzy Dagg. Uh, other than that, the team didn't change. In 2015, they had to make do with out-halves changing because of injury. But aside from that, the, the team was fucking essentially set in stone. Razzie changed his starting front row after the loss to New Zealand. He started with, uh, if I remember correctly, Kitchoff and and Marks. Malcolm Marks, Marks in the, started in the front row. Yeah. And then from then on, he started uh, the Beast and Bonambi. Um with the other with the other guys going into the bomb squad. Uh, and then at one stage he missed Cheslin Colby for one of the knockout games. But like otherwise, if you lay it out in an Excel spreadsheet, it's just they're the same names. So what I, you know, essentially it's like you have a first choice 15 definitely in your head as a coach. You're reliant on them not getting injured. And even if you look back into uh, Clive Woodward in, in 2003, their big call was that it was that difficult situation with Will Greenwood and his, his wife had a difficult pregnancy and they called in Catty. But other than that, like, team didn't change that much. No. You know, it's mostly, it's, it's, it's funny, it's far more about the team than the squad in the World Cup. And if you get unlucky with injuries, you're fucked. Yeah. So don't miss five of your best players your best starters in a quarterfinal. That's it. That's, that'd be good advice. That's good advice. But like in that, in that, the only one that you could, uh, like f- f- as an example, there's times I've, I've read a couple of, of comments over. I can see two tries in the first 10 minutes also. Four minutes. <laughs> uh, like there, there's been instances where Sexton could have played, but they weren't certain of him. And this is for Leinster more so than Ireland. Um, they said, "Oh, we'll, you know, we'll put him on the bench, and if we're in a semi-final, they definitely play it." They're going, "You just don't fucking take that chance. You just put him out if he's fifty percent and comes off early. You just eat it." Going through that environment, it, it, to win a tournament, you almost have to be able to play within yourself for pretty much every match up until the final. And and then or and, the semi. and or the semi, but <clears throat> the box played with themselves against Wales. Oh, kind of all the way through, you sort of have to be able to play within yourself. And the only reason I say that is that like Ireland are so often j- just seem pockmarked by injuries be- because we have to strain every sinew to win particular matches. Whereas, like. All those teams that you go through, like the two South African teams, the 07 and the 19 teams, the Kiwi team. The Kiwi team is the big exception because I think that the pressure on them, and it wasn't the other teams who were applying the pressure, it was the pressure of playing in New Zealand. Like the idea of Dan Carter, who at the peak of his physical prowess, getting injured, kicking goals unopposed, which, and as a, as which, a, which he did for like 20 years. And as a... Basically, a forty-year-old, he kicked twenty-four hours of goals yeah. recently. You're just thinking that's that's just pure tension. Yeah. So, like that that pressure and tension, uh, almost broke what was by far the best. Like they were they were further away from the rest of the world at that tournament 
Um, maybe maybe they were further away in 2015 because by that stage they were so good and they they didn't have the pressure on them. Um, And like so it proved to be, but I I just think you need to be able to, you you can't be busting yourself to win a quarterfinal. Well, just further to my comment that we're going to lose the quarterfinal, I would rather play New Zealand in the quarterfinal than than France in France because I've I've been to see Ireland play France in a World Cup match in the Stade de France. And you'd have to win by 20 points to win by one point. Yeah, you would get absolutely fucked by the ref. Yeah, Up, right, left, centre, every direction. So I just would rather... Yeah. I would like say, if France lose to New Zealand in the group stage, I would put out the seconds against South Africa and say, it's grand, beat us by 50 points, lads. It doesn't matter. We're here to be, play one game. Yeah, Two I, games, I, Scotland and... I agree. I think there's only one team could beat France in the quarterfinals in the World Cup, and that's England, because there's it's so close to London. London, London, that... Good walk you, there. You could... You could, <laughs> yeah, cred. You could, you could... You're not going to outnumber the French, but you could get a sufficiently large away representation. And you don't know how the tickets are distributed. And England are accustomed to going and playing in France, but that is that is the only way. Yeah, and like even Britishers aren't afraid of the French. No, no, no. And the, and they'll have enough people going there. The Kiwis are afraid of the French. Yeah, the South Africans aren't afraid of anybody. That's no, no. And like, I would make them and France favorites for the World Cup. But that's not going to do them any good. Like they're still going to have a bit, like hundred and forty people there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's not going to be no. A, I can, I can remember that we were at that convention. game together in uh, 2007. That uh, English ref with the grey, Chris White, Chris White, well remembered, didn't give us a fucking. I remember. Thing. I remember he gave out to uh, was Red and playing. Yeah, it was Reds. And like lazy runner by Chabal just ran into his pass, and he gave out to Redden for throwing it into him. Yeah, and you're going like. This is a fucking joke Don't here. do that again, or I will run for Tory in a safe seat. Exactly, yeah. Like, as the mayor of France. <laughs> what a cock. Um, anyway, speaking of competitions, it's final season, um, and there's been a lot of cup match rugby being played in Twickenham, for example, <laughs> where they don't like leather on their balls, so they try to kick it all off. So I, I I predicted vocally to you and other people uh, that Saracens would just roll into Twickenham, so used to winning, even though they've been you know relegated and all that. They've had their Juventus, uh, everyone's somehow forgiven them for being complete cheats. Yeah, and coming back up, it was really hard for us. Yeah, it was really hard for us down the second division beating everyone by eighty points. Yeah, it's really hard for us being relegated for cheating. Um, anyway, did. I I I really thought. Um, I agree. I, thought I really thought they would roll over Leicester, and someone said to me, "This is Borthwick's. It'd be the first game where Borthwick really has to come up with a specific plan for how they play the game, rather than just turn up and be Leicester." Yeah, and we did come up with a specific plan, which was to kick the ball as far away from their goal line as possible. Yeah, fifty. They kicked from hand fifty-seven times in a game. So I said to you, if you kick thirty-seven times, it's a lot. Uh, I can't recall a team ever kicking forty-seven times. So fifty-seven is. Fucking ridiculous. Uh, George Ford got injured early, but George Ford was kicking the shit out of the ball as well. I think some stat I read, I haven't checked it up myself, but it's 
I think I did check and then quickly forgot, but I think between him and Freddie Burns, so I did two out halves who played uh, for Leicester over the course of the 80 minutes, they passed the ball 13 times, um, which is fucking staggeringly low. I looked at their kick pass run and it's like one is the one is to two. Like they they kicked as often as they passed basically or not, you know, roughly when we're getting down to, you know, zero decimal points, it's basically one is the one is to two. I watched a game and... I certainly thought of I, I thought of you and, and one of our favorite sporting quotes from Valdano. Like big atmosphere, a lot of tension, great goal winning, game winning, championship winning, um, drop kick from Freddie Burns, but fucking shit on a stick. If people hanging in Anfield, it was a complete shit on a stick. There was eighty thousand people in Twickenham, it was nervy. And you you know, there's room, there's room in rugby for games like that, but you don't have to fucking pretend it was a good game or an, or an enjoyable game to watch. If that game was played down in Lakelands or in fucking Carlo or in um, wherever Bucks used to play. Oh, Dubarry Park. Dubarry Park. Dubarry yeah. Park. Like you're just there going, Jesus Christ, that was a dog of a game. The only thing that made it a good game was the atmosphere, which is generated by people in the stands rather than on the pitch. It was a fucking bad game, and it shows that there is a way to win rugby under the current iteration of the laws. And the laws, like you have to talk about current iteration of laws because laws change frequently in lo- rugby. Like if you look back into like the big law conferences, a big one was in 1992, um, and the game changes a lot. You know yeah. when they change the laws, and like this iteration of of rugby where. You just don't you don't handle the ball in your own half as soon as you get it. Your your scrum half box kicks either potentially to compete, or if that competition doesn't work and then it falls into a kick tennis bout of players kicking infield long, trying to kick it into the twenty two, not necessarily kicking for any um for any nest like it's it's two phases ahead thing that they're kicking for. So horrible game to watch. But why why do you think that is? I mean, do you not think the fifty twenty two is designed to make the defense keep more guys in the backfield, which gives you more Saracen opportunity? Saracen sometimes played Saracen sometimes played not just with three people in the backfield, but with four. Incredible. And Leicester still kicked at them. And it just degenerated into long and to Matt kicking just outside the 22 or just inside the 22 to the middle of the pitch, back and forth. Now, there were some phases in play where the ball was in play a long time. Um, when I say phases, like not phases that you would recognize, it's like kick battles. So no tackles, chasing kicks, and then it does tire forwards out. It's interesting. But then, as another pet peeve of mine, then you just replace all their fucking forwards anyway. It doesn't matter if the forwards are tied out. Because they take ages to set up a line out and they fucking, any time that the referee hurries them up in a scrum, they all just, somebody stands up before they, like there's, how you can litigate against this blight is by referee, like a couple of things, is by referees verbally hurrying up people at scrum and line out time saying, this is taking too long, the next time you take this long, I'm going to free kick you. And it's the same at scrum, it's like, come on lads, bind, quickly, second row's in, quickly, if you do this again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to free kick you. Well, yellow card. Yeah, well, like I, I, I think, I think it, I think it has to be, I think it actually has to be a deterrent, like a, a proper, 
I think it has to be a proper uh, kind of scary deterrent. Yeah. Where like because a, a free kick, you're just kind of taking another scroll. No, you know, like no. A, I have another law change, and I fucking love this one because bring back like the drop goals. You saw drop goals and how much they add to the game in terms of excitement. No drop goals basically in rugby anymore, apart from finals rugby. It's like bring back the free kick drop goal, which I cannot see any downside to. The free kick is so drastically underpowered at the moment. Like there's no fucking point to having a free kick. It's just scrum again. Yeah. Or occasionally quick tap. Bring back the free kick off a drop goal. Drop goal off a free kick. So um, just to... Sorry, uh, side, that was a sidebar. Sidebar. After that sidebar, bringing back the uh, traumatic memories of the Bulls beating Leinster, which we didn't have a direct conversation directly afterwards. There, some parts of that game that um, very much annoyed me, and most of them were to do with Leinster, uh, dropping the ball and doing bad offloads and giving... Don't mind the, the bad offloads so much. I was, some of them were really poorly chosen, I thought. But, mm. I, I mean, I understand that offloads don't always come off and it's a part of playing a, a game the way they do, but I think some of them were quite poorly chosen. Um, but the game, the ball to a team that um, played a very, very re- reduced um, style of rugby incredibly well on the day. Oh, they were the better team. On oh, absolutely! But yeah. they played it. They played this game. They were brilliant in the lineouts. They disturbed all the lineout ball. They got penalties where they needed them. A turnover time. Your man Grabalar was incredible. Bruce and they just kicked the ball overhead and put pressure on us. Put pressure on us, and we couldn't. We couldn't make line breaks. We still scored three very nice tries in that game, mm. but ultimately, like, so there's one. Yeah, the one thing that I think. I thought it got overlooked because the narrative became about Leinster can't beat this kind of powerful team. Leinster were 10 points down, struggling to match the physicality of the team, but in a big period of pressure, when they hadn't scored for, I think, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, and they kicked to the corner rather than making it a one-score game. And I immediately said, why aren't you kick- taking your easy points here? Point of information and, and then, here. I don't think that they were massively overpowered in that game. I rewatched it the next day. Well, it's like, for funny yeah, enough, I'm, I, not, I'm not like, uh, like, I never get too downhearted about Leinster losing games because like, it pisses me off, but I enjoy the season so much, the way we're playing. It's like, why did we lose that game? Because we couldn't win our fucking lions. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, thought, I thought exactly the same afterwards. And I thought to myself that the thing that's going to annoy me the most about this match is all the commentary afterwards is going to be that, oh, Leinster were out physical. And you're thinking to yourself, ah, wait a minute. Like, surely every team that loses a match is out physical. Or else they're cheated by the ref. It's like, you know, what are you in here for? Uh, I'm innocent. <laughs> lawyer, fuck lawyer, me. lawyer, fuck me, you know? <laughs> um, is the, the loss against La Rochelle was completely different from the loss against the Bulls. 100%. So to equate them to being the same thing, sorry, the only commonality was the breakdown. Correct. And even then, it's it's a bit of a stretch to say that the Bulls, because like La Rochelle went all in on the Leinster breakdown. The Bulls didn't. No. They didn't have to because they went all in on the Leinster line it. So to sort of say, like you can draw a parallel and say, well, you know, the Bulls only went for one and three. And you're kind of thinking to yourself, did they? Like, did did they really decimate the Leinster breakdown that much? Like, they they're just 
like <laughs> they're big fellas. They yeah. they really it's it's their tackling. Like I, I didn't see it as being a breakdown issue. I saw it as being that Leinster played an awful lot in front of the Bulls. They tried to play an awful lot of rugby far away from the line. And if you play against South Africans like that, you're just And they played on the open side. Because like it was Eddie Jones. Eddie Jones went down there and he talked about he talked about it in his book, I think, and he talked about it in the aftermath of the World Cups. He goes like, geez, when you coach South Africa, you don't, it's only then that you really understand how much of their game is predicated in defense. Like, they would happily defend for 79 minutes and win 3-0. Mm-hmm. Like, not just like that they take the 3-0 result, they'd actually enjoy tackling and defending for 79 minutes. And like, you need to take them on. So Leinster were running a lot of pattern all in front of the South Africans. And like, all, like, so when, when teams beat Leinster, it's typically like, we play a lot of 10, a lot through on the open side of the pitch because that's where the space is. And it's like, South Africa, Cornell Hendricks and the rest of the lads just closing that space down. And, but that was only part of it. Like, the big thing was like, we get loads of penalties, we kick the touch, we lose the fucking line out. We had three five metre line outs stolen, not spoiled, three of them. So, and again, like that got a lot of coverage, but, after the first four minutes of the first half, I think I, I turned around to you to and me, I said, yeah. they've won three of these mm. or they've they've disrupted three of these. Like I, I counted it in my head during the match that the the Bulls were in double figures on Leinster line out. And the thing that, and then I thought of what Mum had said is that uh, I don't like going to watch matches where James Ryan is captain. I don't think they ever really do that well. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, wow, that is absolutely scarily accurate. It's um, like when Jamie used to be captain. I know Jamie had a good winning record, but I was like... Yeah, it just... So, and the reason that I, I bring that one up is that Leinster did, didn't didn't change and, and didn't seem to have a game plan for how to, to play a final. So you talk about Steve Borthwick preparing Leicester for this is the way we're going to play in a final. And against it, these opponents, against these particular opponents, and um, you go, it's not that Leinster didn't have a plan, it's that they only had one. It's like, well, what happens when that one doesn't work? Like, what do you do? So, you're sort of going to yourself, we're being absolutely screwed in the line out here, and we're going to double down on it. And you, you and I think this is very much a hallmark of, of James Ryan's captaincy is that it's kind of like, oh, stick to the process, stick to the process. You know, and this is, this is, you know, such a robotic answer and Heaslip always says it, but you go, yeah, look, that's, sticking to the process works when you're better than everybody, that you just keep on doing, like, you know, what you're going out to do. But it's, it's corporate. It's just like, we're absolutely enormous, we never say sorry, and we're just crushing them with the lawyers. It's not wheeler dealer, entrepreneurial, like um, we're gonna sell you something in a completely different. Well, like we're we're gonna be whatever. Like we're gonna be nimble. We're gonna be quick. Like no short line outs, no taking your points. Like just going after the line out again and again and again when it's not working. And you're thinking to yourself, and it's been a common refrain of Ireland since 2015, maybe with Rory Best saying, maybe 2011 against the Welsh match with Rory Best saying, Ireland going to the corner. No, Ireland not coming out of a match and then somebody saying in, I don't know, an unguarded moment or a moment of honesty, uh, it was a shame we didn't we didn't react well. We didn't think enough on our feet. And you sort of think to yourself, hang on a minute, like this isn't even a new refrain. This is 
um, this is more than a decade ago, and Ireland still aren't reacting. They're still not thinking on their feet. And there is this constant refrain of, oh, just stick with the process. And you go, the process doesn't work, lads. Do something else. Well, <clears throat> I, it's, so, it's funny when you get into that pattern and you have a, load, a period of pressure, you're thinking like, we've got to crack these. We've got to make this worth something. We've got to psychologically overcome this hurdle. And I thought Johnny mm-hmm. came on and he was getting, immediately the South Africans just went in and started like, rubbing his face in the ground and hitting him late and doing all the things that like like you know wrestling heels do and Johnny was so so angry and he was like let's go into the corner he was more up for the arm wrestle than anyone and we went into the corner now in the game against France we had a chance we were what five points down we kicked to the corner and or no we didn't we didn't kick to the corner and I applauded it we took our points we didn't get another chance in the yeah. end yeah 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 I applaud it still it's still the right decision take your fucking points agreed and I thought that uh, like I, I mean I, I mean sort of in anywhere kickable I don't mean on the right touchline or on the left touchline in the tram lines I mean if it's in the box especially if it's on the kicker side take your points and get the ball back it's it's all it's, I don't know if you said this but like it's it's all it's not almost it's braver it has more it shows more faith in yourself it's not like we have to snatch this chance to get seven points. It's like, we're going to get back down here again. You know? Like, in a two-score game, you've got, like, you have to score the try, then you have to get the ball back and get somewhere within kicking penalty, and they have to give away a penalty. And those get like, those, we were, like, behind by 10. You know, we're, they were taking kicks to the corner at, like, 55 minutes. You're going, no. 25 minutes left in this game. I thought, by the way, against La Rochelle, like, some people, because we lost... Uh, I was like, oh, we, we've kicked to the corner in those positions. You're going, no, if you look at the game against Toulouse, when we got a when we got a, a kick in the box, like we kicked it over the sticks. When you're wide of the box and it's a tougher kick, then you go to the corner. But if you're in front of the sticks, take the kick. Yeah. It should also be said that I think both teams who beat us had far superior line kicking from penalties than we did. Oh, God. Uh, highlighted uh, weakness after the final. Yeah. But just like... So conservative the way Lancer kick from penalties, considering they do it yeah. a lot. That it's so conservative. That guy who I can't remember the name of the Bulls out half, but he looked like Smith. It <laughs> was one of the steam caps. There's three steam caps in the team. <laughs> yeah. Now we're one to talk. We've got three O'Briens and three Burns, but uh, four Burns. But he looked like if you like, he just looked like a zero point nine percent scale version of Francois Lowe. Did you notice that? Like he's exactly the same as him. He's a fucking muscle bound ox of a fella. His line kicking, his penaltouches, as they called them in uh, the top fourteen, were amazing. Just like Bryce Dulans were against us. So it also came back to a thing that I will presage, or was before this discussion that we were discussing. Uh, about um, what kind of rugby you have to play to win tournaments. And you said to me... Um, 2015 what, semi-final. Talking about, talking about 20... Was it, yeah. To be a great team, and I, I was saying that you've got to be able to play within yourself, you have to be able to play more than one... You've got to be able to play well in more than one way. So... As good and all as New Zealand were in 2015, with attacking with the ball in hand, and I'd say the best team ever to win the World Cup. When they had to beat South Africa, they knew don't play it in your own half. Kick, 
kick, kick. And you're sort of going into that match. You're going, conditions as well, it's it? crappy conditions. Yeah. And you just thought they're going, New Zealand are going to kick in behind the South Africans. They're going to kick to the corner. All match. They're, they're going to go after this all match determinately. And the reason, and oh my, I, I can't remember when, when McCaw's, uh, when McCaw's biography came out, but he talked about a match where Jared Payne played uh, for the Crusaders oh, yeah, against yeah. the Bulls. And he said, you don't counter. You don't run. You kick it up in the air. You chase hard. You do not play the match in your own half against these guys because they'll merrily tackle you and just kick the penalty. This is what they want to do. Like, they've no aspirations about scoring a try. This is how they'll beat you. Or else they might kick it into the corner and maul you over. Like, that'll be their try. And Jared ran it back and he got tackled. And, like, McCaw, eight, nine years later, just hadn't forgotten it. Actually went and made a point of it in his book. And you're there going, wow, like, that's... That's what it takes. It's what it takes. But even South Africa, who... South Africa scored good tries in the World Cup final against England. And, like, quick hands, straight running, centres and wingers, uh, Canio Am, uh, Cheslin Colby, not not mulling it over. Like, really good tries. Able to play it, able to play it that way. Haven't softened England up. And... You know, Jason Robinson scored for England in 2003, but they, they, they played all the way through. Like, so it's just the idea that you can do one thing. And I was disappointed in Leo, who I thought, I, I really felt sorry for him after the Bulls match in particular, because he mm-hmm. looked emptied. But again, like when, when he, he, he talked about the match, and he talked about Leinster being in their flow. And then we sort of talked about it off the podcast. But Stuart Lancaster gave an interview on uh, BBC and he talked about during COVID, they did war games with the Crusaders. Like, how would you play against us? How would we play against you? Like, these are the things that you target. And you kind of think to yourself, Jesus, like, the Crusaders are great, but you want to pick a team that's really going to give you problems. Like, ring up the, I was going to say, like, ring up the lines. If you can't ring up the bulls, like, how would you play against us? Because, like, this this is what we struggle against, you know? Well, the Crusaders played like the bulls against the blues. The Crusaders absolutely pillaged the Blues line in uh, line out in the in the final. They, I think they spoiled or stole nine out of 19. They were so, I'm almost like, I wouldn't say almost like a South African team. I would say like a South African team. The, the Richie Moore had a drop goal and everything. Like it, was, it was fucking such a coaching masterclass because the Blues have been, I would have said it going into this, the Blues have been the best team in New Zealand. They look like dog shit in that final. Not dog shit. Like they're, you know, they got team. beat. Yeah. They got beat. They got they, beaten. They hand. got beat. They got beat. And I, I think that's the... He talked a lot about how much, how, how confident Lara Shell were in that final. And I, I can't overstate the belief that a team gets from being given a plan that works by their coach and they just think this guy knows what he's talking about like like he just he just understands the game yeah um and it it it's it, it's incredible because you see something that's working and then it also weakens the resolve of the opposition because mm. they think like we we figured it out and 
like case in point, when when the tide turned, you go back to that Leinster Munster match in Crow Park in two thousand and what eight nine eight nine nine, nine. fifth May two thousand and nine. Leinster, but Leinster had a very concerted plan about what they wanted to do at certain times, and I remember at half time going, Jesus, like, they're actually doing it. And looking at the Munster fans, the Munster fans didn't know what was going on, but it was not the script. Yeah. And they're sort of going like, Leinster are not playing like we're expecting them to play. But that was the point. And I, I go back to it like you, you cannot overstate it. So what we're saying about Borthwick, it sounds very, I I kind of disagree with you in the laws. Like I, I think there's been enough provision in the laws to I agree with you on the timekeeping thing. Um, but I think with like the with the fifty twenty two, um, that's been the the, the, the single biggest law. change. And I no think, no no. Well, the, and the, I think the other the other thing, like I'm curious about this. Will a team start tackling next season in a kind of get under fallback type of defense? So what I mean by that is, if you're defending your line and you hold up the opposition over your line you get a dropout. Yeah. And no one's done it yet. Everyone's sort of... I'm really shocked now. Some, some people... Are like, I often I often sort of think the tackling isn't offensive enough, but oftentimes it's gutsy and you're going like, well, you're getting the crap. Like, you know, it's, it's hard because they're latching. But how come nobody has just taken the approach to go, we're going to get lower and we're going to hold you and then we're just going to pull you over and it's our dropout. And yeah. it, it immediately goes, because like, surely, surely that's the way to defend. Yeah. I, I'm, I was really but, surprised that hasn't... That other change has been big. You're absolutely right. The 50-22 is a really good, it's not innovative because it came from rugby league, but it's been a really good law. The other one is like 22s basically don't exist anymore. The amount of times now the ball is kicked into, bounces over into a dead ball and a player has to go back, pick it up and kick it out himself. Like yeah. in the old days, it used to just be, oh, grand, that's bounced over the line. I'll just touch it down. We'll get a 22, another break. Like that has taken pace into the game. And it's it's a really welcome, uh, it's a really welcome law. We and found a, a what of the third case of the twenty two dropout during the Bulls oh, match. Yeah. So it's it previously it's if you miss a penalty and it goes dead, you miss a drop goal and it goes yeah. dead, it goes to twenty two. If it's blocked down but not kicked over yeah. and goes into the in goal area or goes dead from that, goes dead. I think even if it's touched down, it's still a twenty two. Blocked down should always be five meter scrums. That's another change. Lockdowns are the most. Lockdown and goes dead. It's a. It's a. Yeah. Because lockdown is the most exciting the one, thing in rugby. It was the one where Jimmy. Yeah, and he and it was, when he got over, he got. You see, he waited until the ball was over, so he portrayed successfully. Yeah. Uh, but the lockdown, lockdown should be rewarded. Like if you block it down, uh, if you block down, like for example, a box kick in the opposition twenty-two, and it goes over the line, the best they should get should be a five-meter defensive scrum. They should never get like. They should never get an out from that. Mm. Lockdowns are so exciting. Anyway, uh, I don't know if we, if we finish the conversation about tweaking laws. I do want to give a huge amount of kudos to the Bulls for their deceptive five-meter tap and go. Yeah. Like, did, I, was Luke yeah. Cowan Dickey solely responsible for bringing back, for repopularizing tap and goes? Rob Baxter. Rob Baxter, yeah. Well, yeah. And Luke Cowan Dickey was the man who often yeah. took them. And, and like... People have, you know, they've obviously realised it's good to dispense with you know, the potential turnover of a scrum for essentially the same kind of situation where you're sucking in loads of forwards. Yeah. And, like, the lack of... Imagination. The lack of imagination. And then, uh, no surprise, it's a, a coach like Jake White 
and it's it's this it's just one switch yeah. and like one phase and you're in. And yeah. I thought that was I really thought that was a beautiful try, a beautiful touch, like a like a real subtle touch in a game yeah. where they mainly use sledgehammer. Well, sledgehammer plus and a trampoline. <laughs> 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 and the other thing to say, and we haven't said it, we talked a lot about Leicester winning and like the fact it was puke ball, was um, the Stormers catch. The Stormers won, having played bonkers all season, and it didn't stop in yeah. the final. They with, played like lunatics. With their tiny second row. You know, there's two second rows who are about six foot five and about 17 stone. Now they have a front row, like a bunch of animals, Malherbe and, and, and Kitsoff. But like, look at that second row and you're going like, you're playing two blindsides in the second row. Um, but the other thing as well, well, like it is final season. There's, there's big games happening everywhere. Our beloved cast, the little engine who could, knocking over, like there's something so admirable about cast. Like Irish uh, rugby fans take a high-handed approach, you know, because they don't compete well in the, in the European Cup. And it's like, Cass is fucking bouquet and I was at a I was at a game. Cass played Exeter, and it was actually in a in the European Cup. Cass is is so much more like a rugby club. Um, like with all the people going to it, and like you can go down and lean on the fucking advertising boards and bang the boards and all that stuff, and like local characters propping up the bar. It's such a great and it's small. It's like four, 36,000 people. Uh, and the whole place just descends onto, like, they have, like, like, cast has, like, it's, like, smaller. The grounds are smaller than Mary's. You know, there's, like, the big pitch. And there's a small pitch. And there might be another small pitch. But, like, I've been to a lot of bigger rugby grounds than that. And uh, they're fucking mentlers down there. They're completely one-eyed. They're really tough on officials. We <laughs> we got tickets. We were given tickets by uh, by John Lacey, and like so, we were sitting. He wasn't refereeing. Bracer was refereeing. We were sitting in, in like the referee seat. I was looking at us daggers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Cass, like, it's funny. Like they have, like I, I predicted Cass would do well because they have two hundred and thirty kilo props. <laughs> you know, they're going, they're probably where they should be, um, but like they have this bunch of guys who have, it's like their third French club. Like Antoine Guillemont was was with Toulouse. He's one of their. He's a six foot four, hundred thirty nine kilo tight head. He was with Toulouse. Didn't really come through in Toulouse. Gone to Cast. They've Chile Chava who came down from Toulon. For a lot of players, it's their second or third club. They've got Canadians. Uh, Tyler Ardron is there. He's paid for the Ospreys. Uh, they've got they've got this fucking wild looking dude. He's a huge. He played against Munster. His uh, tight head, and he just looks like a bigger human. He doesn't look like a prop. <laughs> His name is Hunk Patan. He looks like a giant Native American. Uh, and he played in the in the game against Toulouse. But like, they have like. Uh, they have guys like Erda Paletta still playing. It's like a lot of like these guys who've played in Pro D uh, and you just you, you realize like so many people in the south of France, especially, are just like they're as rugby as New Zealanders are. 
Mm. You know, they are born from the cradle. They're like in the rugby scene. They're playing minis. Uh, not all in cast, obviously. But whatever it is about cast, I, t- I used to think it was, it was Urias or like he was such a great coach. And he is a good coach. But uh, it's like they've... There's such a, there's like a real determination of turning out for a cast, but then, like some of their like their their try that sealed the game against Toulouse was just lovely. It's a mm-hmm. great bit of rugby. So they have this they have this great belief in themselves. This is their fourth uh, top fourteen final in about thirteen or fourteen years, and they are like you look at cast squad and you're going like. What's the difference between Cast Squad and Breathe Squad? They fuck all internationals in their team. Uh, but whatever they're doing down there, whatever's in the water from Pierre Fab, which is probably chemical, it fucking works. Mm. I would say Munster's best display of the season was winning in Cast yeah. in the Heineken Cup. Out half in the day? Crowley. Yes, you know. Really? Yeah. Wow. I think we close on that note. <laughs>